Explore the new AFIF AHA guideline and key highlights for supporting and guiding your severe symptomatic aortic stenosis patients at heartvalve.com. This message is brought to you by Edward Fleifeinfuss. Connect with us at heartvalve.com. You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. This month, as part of our Getting to Know You series, Roxana Mehran catches up with Sharon Hayes. Hello, it's Roxana Moran from Rocks Heart Radio, and I am really, really excited for today's episode of Getting to Know You. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Sharon Hayes, who's a cardiologist and professor of cardiovascular medicine at uh, the Mayo Clinic um, in Rochester, Minnesota. She has over 25 years of experience in treating uh, heart disease as and she's really focused on heart disease in women. Uh, she uh, runs a clinic there uh, at the Mayo Clinic. She's the direct. She's also the director of diversity and inclusion, responsible for developing solutions for improving cultural competence and equity in patient care and workforce. She's developed so many programs. Um, uh, personally, I'm just so thrilled. I feel like I have a wow factor here today and I wanna welcome you. Sharon, if it's okay, Dr. Hayes, I'd like to just kind of talk to you and address you as Sharon, is that okay? Absolutely, uh, welcome, <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> welcome to our program and thank you for all of your contributions and everything you've done. Um, this is about getting to know you. So, um, Sharon, what made you interested in cardiology and how did you um, find your way as a woman to this level of leadership uh, in cardiovascular disease? Well, I sometimes, you know, when I'm counseling folks who are trying to decide what they want to do, I, I do tell them that I said, it, I didn't grow up wanting to be a cardiologist or even a doctor. And so I did know that at some point I probably wanted to have a family um, and I did know kind of that I like to think and I like to be with patients. So sometimes I would look at a specialty that I thought would achieve, help me achieve one of those and I really try to like it. I, I, you know, I really tried to like radiology and ophthalmology and dermatology and I could not. So there's a certain thing that draws you. I knew I went, so when I went into enteral medicine, I was not immediately going to be in cardiology. But at the time, the intern year, there was a six-month block with the same three co-residents of all the ICUs and all of cardiology. So that was my, and, and it was a burnout, it was everything, but it was so fun. And I really liked it, but I kind of like a lot of things. But I kept circling back. I do other rotations. And in the end, um, I really liked cardiology the best. But by that time, I was dating a cardiologist. So I told myself I should not be a cardiologist because it would be hard for us to find a job in the same place. But after thinking about it, I said, why should I not do what I want to do just because he got there first? So I decided to apply for cardiology. And I haven't looked back. I mean, it, for any of you thinking that cardiology isn't conducive to um, a balanced life, that it isn't exciting um, uh, or that it's too exciting. I would just say there is a place for everyone in cardiology, particularly women. You know, I was told when I thought about going into cardiology, two things to discourage me. One was at the time, only 6% of cardiologists overall were women. 
and also that there was going to be a glut of cardiologists and I probably wouldn't be able to find a job. Now, remember this is pre, you know, intervention in the middle of the night. This is pre-TEE done by physicians. And so the other thing that I learned along this way is don't let somebody else's um, negative talk or predictions keep you from doing something that you really feel is right for you. Wow, isn't that, isn't that amazing? And I, I think, you know, some of the things you've already said are just so profound. Um, you know, dig deep and do what you love. Um, and it's possible, even if you want a family and, uh, and everything else, and you've, you've done that. Now, I did some digging and um, you went to Northwestern uh, University in Chicago, isn't that right? Are you from the Chicago area? No, I moved around a lot. Actually, my father is a physician. I was born when he was a freshman in medical school. Oh. So I kind of moved uh, uh, growing up. But home for me for many years was, uh, was Nashville, Tennessee, actually. Okay. That's where I was born um, uh, at Vanderbilt Hospital. And my father ended up there doing um, uh, training and then stayed there. So my grandparents were there. So that was really where I thought I was going to grow up and then um, moved to the Midwest um, kind of in middle school. And so I felt like um, I still, at the time I went to medical school, felt like Tennessee was sort of home. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but it was, uh, I loved being by the lake. Um, Northwestern was a really good fit for me. Um, and, uh, and then it was, and I was, I, I will say that Northwestern um, Medical School at the time I went was it was a bubble, but I didn't realize it, okay? Mm -hmm. So at the time I graduated from medical school, which was 1983, um, only about 25, 30% of um, medical students were women. But mm -hmm. my class was almost 50%. Wow. And there was a, a woman who was a cardiothoracic surgeon at Northwestern at that time. And so my sub-internship, there was only one guy on the whole team. And that was what I thought medicine was and was going to be like. Yeah. And then you, <laughs> yeah, right. I was in a bubble. That's and a real so bubble. <laughs> it was a quite a big bubble that burst when I came to Mayo Clinic as a resident, I will say, um, uh, where I was, um, where we had an entering class of 50 um, first years and there were fewer than 10 women. And it was a very male-dominated place, um, and so it it was really I, I I got to to sort of believe that everything was equal for probably longer than a lot of my colleagues, my, um, because at the time, but I didn't realize how lucky I was to have that um, to see women in leadership um, and to see you know women team leaders uh, early on, because at least you if you see it, even if you then lose it or change it, you can try to strive to recreate it. Wow. Yeah, no, isn't that, isn't that the truth? And, um, and boy, uh, have you come a long way. I mean, I uh, saw that you started in Mayo Clinic in 1990. Uh, over the last, um, you know, almost three decades now, you have done so much uh, and a lot of focus on women and heart disease. Uh, you've been on TV shows, on Good Morning America, the Charlie Rose Show, the CNN Morning Show, the Dr. Oz Show, and um, you've been able to like really, really be out there as a huge spokeswoman for heart disease in women. 
Um, tell me what first, why did you get interested in that? Not because you're a woman, but why did you get interested in that? And then what have you noticed over the last four decades of like really devoting your time to this? I know you did, I mean, for a, a long, long time, I would, when I would see a red dress and I see that big red dress behind you right there, <laughs> our, our uh, listeners can't see, but um, there's a gorgeous big red dress, the AHA red dress. Uh, sitting right in um, Dr. Hayes's office just behind her. But, you know, when you think about, when I think about the red dress, I just think of you, you know, I mean, that's how I envision it as somebody who listened to you over and over again, kind of pounding the pavement on, on this. So what got you interested in that? Well, I think it, it, it was evolutionary. I did not, um, one, I did not, uh, I go into medicine, thinking I was going to do women's health. Um, I, I think what I woke up to as I, I came on faculty and after a few years in practice, um, so this is in the mid 90s, I was realizing that when I would sit in my office with my men patients, um, the, the, their, their reaction to the medication or the treatment I recommended or the reliability of the testing that I ordered on them was pretty good. And for women, I was constantly surprised or disappointed or things didn't work or they had unusual side effects or, and so, and then I, I kind of reflected on this as how, and recognized as things were emerging that really the women weren't included in the research in the eighties um, and, and in the nineties. And so of course we did not have an evidence base in which to um, treat them. And so, it was really as I, and then I also realized that I had attracted a, probably a higher than average, you know, I didn't have a women's practice at that time, but I, I was being exposed to this perhaps more than some of my male colleagues as well. So women would tell me, but that, that medication didn't work, or I would, you know, I do a stress test and I would say it was, oh, you know what, that was a false positive because you had normal coronaries. Well, we didn't know about microvascular disease. Mm -hmm. And so it was through the patient experience and my frustration sometimes, or my, I guess, scientific um, inquiry to try to figure that one out. It was around the time of Women's Health Initiative when, before Women's Health Initiative uh, was published, actually it was proposed that maybe we should be giving hormones, like cardiologists should be prescribing hormones to, to women to prevent heart disease. So there was a lot of interest. And, uh, and so I, I really felt like, one, I had the patient population, I had the supportive organization to kind of pull together a team who, if nothing else, we'd have a, a core of clinical expertise that could, we could provide to our, our colleagues, but hopefully aspirationally, we would develop a, um, a, a research initiative where we could try, try to start answering these questions and to affirm to our women patients that yes, we've seen this. We've seen chest pain with normal coronary arteries. We don't understand it, but you're not crazy. And, um, and so out of that, um, uh, and serendipitously, so we found, so um, I founded our Women's Heart Clinic. We opened in 1998, which is, you know, I, don't, I won't claim it's the first because I don't know which was the first, but we were among the first. Um, and right around that time, I got um, approached by the founders of Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. 
like literally it was a cold call, it was a letter, I saved it, um, asking me, you know, to be a part of their scientific advisory council. And I remember my response, which was, I don't need another volunteer job where you just want my name or to do something. I want to make a difference. And boy, that partnership with a patient-focused patient advocacy organization allowed me to be a better doctor. And I've said this before, because your own patients are not going to tell you the real thing, particularly if they kind of like you, but you weren't on, you know, maybe you weren't on point. And so to, um, as we started training women with heart disease to be advocates and educators, and to hear women with heart disease talk about their experience in healthcare, to talk about their cardiologist, to say, can you believe this guy said this? And sometimes it was outrageous, but sometimes it was not only can I believe he said it, he was probably right. I, I'm sure he did not mean for you to hear it that way, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I had said that. And so it has gave, given me insights um, as well as I think the, 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 the wind beneath my wings, so to speak, to be more of a patient advocate. Um, and, and so I, I think that um, that opened up things uh, both to meet uh, a cadre of other women who were part of that scientific advisory council who were also maybe the only one at their institution who was sort of seeing this and 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 so that it it was a great sisterhood but it also allowed some scientific collaborations um, to to build the science um, and include women in the science and um, so I, I I think that was a rambling way of saying how things started, but it started with the observation that I just didn't know enough about taking care of patients. I still feel that a lot, but I feel like that there are people who are paying attention to the kinds of scientific questions that we need to ask about sex and gender differences. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I'd love to see, you know, I mean, the impact that you've made as a pioneer and so many of us following you, following your lead, um, you saw the Lancet Commission that we just mm -hmm. published in the Lancet. Um, what excites you about the progress that we've made in addressing heart disease in women? What are you, what are you like proud of? Um, and what are you disappointed by? So, so one of the things, and, and this is not necessarily a, a research finding, but I will just say that um, it heartens me when I'm talking to a patient who's been referred to me perhaps because of a positive stress test. And she says, I just thought it was heartburn, but you know, my doctor took it really seriously and that's why I'm here in your office because they ordered the stress test for me. And that just didn't happen early on. Women were just told um, they didn't get heart disease. They were, and, and I watched the scientific, I mean, the, the psychological, um, negative effect of being told this is all in your head that angina that you're having um you know just go exercise a bit more or just live your life and we're not going to treat your risk factors so that has been long in coming but but i think it's particularly in the cardiology community we know that heart disease happens to women and we know that it happens differently and we may not have the perfect science but that's i think that's big I think what disappoints me um, uh, are probably two things. One, we still are not including women in the kind of research that we need, um, particularly in interventional cardiology and in heart failure trials and device trials. Um, and, and I think that that's the only way 
um, because if uh, if we don't include women, we're not going to know what um, uh, what to do with them. And furthermore, we still the highest risk women, Black women, Native American women, um, we're not including them in research um, or providing them equitable care. So I think we've made huge strides that have benefited some women more than others, um, and and we have a lot to go. And I think the the final thing that um, <laughs> It actually has given me PTSD again. Um, is as you know, one of my areas of, of research interest is spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD. Mm -hmm. And so this happens predominantly in younger or middle-aged women, and so they don't look the part. Many of them um, are are thin and look fit, and they come in with sometimes literally classic symptoms. I mean, they're like, there's an elephant in my chest. It's going down my arm. I'm sweaty and short of breath, and I just threw up. I mean, you could not make the, the, the more typical heart attack symptoms. They've actually, I have several patients who a troponin was actually ordered and positive and they were sent home. And to me, there would be no man who came in to an emergency department with those symptoms and a positive troponin who would be told we're gonna follow up with on an outpatient basis. And so those, um, that, those unconscious biases, whatever you wanna call it, those biases or ignorance about heart disease in women or inability to see the symptoms devoid of the patient who's actually infarcting in front of you, that's a frustration. And I think overcoming, um, overcoming that is big. Do you know that the, um, the very first tagline for NHLBI's Heart Truth Campaign, which came out in um, 2003 was, heart disease doesn't care what you wear. And that's where the red dress came from, is like you can be all dressed up in a red evening gown, but you can still get heart disease. And we have to internalize that as well and recognize um, the package and the, um, and the pattern and then learn more about why it's happening in a 20-year-old. Yeah, no, no question. And, and that was sort of some of our findings as you as you may know, um, there is a stagnation in that decline in cardiovascular mortality and prevalence in women. And that decline, the, the, the stagnation of that decline is what worries me. Yeah. And some of the intangibles that you already mentioned, the underprivileged, the uh, socio-demographic indices, and then the, psycho, the psychosocial uh, factors that are usually not really accounted for, the access to care for some of the underrepresented minorities and, and the poverty and partner violence and those kinds of things that are not really looked upon. And I think it's something that we have to pay attention to. And the other thing that we found was that, you know, hypertension was sort of the most important contributor to the heart disease death of women and mortality in women. And it just seems to me as the lowest hanging fruit and why is it that we're still under-treating and under-diagnosing hypertension in women? It's baffling to me as far as the primordial prevention for heart disease. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, well, I think because it's not sexy. It doesn't require a device, nor even a brand name drug. Right. It, it requires what is in every office, and you can buy for 30 bucks and have at home, a blood pressure cuff. It requires one or more generic drug to treat. So, so I think we, we really do have to re-examine um, where our priorities are because 
um, there is, it's not just the Lancet Commission. I mean, the burden of hypertension on women, particularly compared to, to, to even men in terms of um, heart failure, uh, of, of death and disability, and stroke in particular, is huge for women. And, um, and this is not a disease that we have a lack of tools or diagnostic um, uh, paraphernalia. And so I think that's where we have to dig deep about our processes, about our value of women in society. And I say that because for something that is easy to detect and relatively easy to treat and economically easy to treat, if we are failing there, we are failing women. No, there's no question about it. And, and I think that that's an area. So, you know, the renal denervation trials are coming back and they're kind of exciting before uncontrolled hypertension and maybe that will wake up people and hopefully the sponsors will start to think about uh, oh we need to treat more women with hypertension i'm going to just lastly first of all um i mean i know you're a grandmother and i love that that <laughs> i love that about you you're the youngest grandmother i know <laughs> and uh, and and so proud of it and of your amazing family how did you do it? Um, and what's your advice to our listeners, uh, men or women who are listening to say, I want a career that is just as successful. I want to make impact just as massive impact that Sharon Hayes has made in diagnosing heart disease in women or whatever it is that their passion is in. But I also want a family. How did you do that? Well, um, I, you know, and I, I am married to a cardiologist, um, and uh, it became very clear early on that if we had two of us both working 68 hours, 80 hours a week, that um, the compromise for our family, I, I have two adult children, um, the compromise for our family, and honestly for me, what I wanted out of my family life was going to be too much. So I did work less than full time um, early on, um, which meant that the result was I was a very late bloomer in terms of academic promotion. Um, I saw many of the people that I trained who were full professors before I was, and I actually didn't think I would ever reach that goal. Um, and but I, as I got closer and realized, okay, my kids went off to school. I have this energy now to devote to this thing that I'm excited about, heart disease in women and SCAD, and um, was able to sort of dig deep and move forward. And so the perspective I have of looking back is trying to do and have that self-expectation, which I clearly did, of keeping up with um, the person who is destined to be the youngest, you know, president of their society ever, right? That that couldn't be me and I needed to move beyond that and do the things that brought me joy, that brought purpose and meaning to my life, which very much was my family, and be at peace with sometimes not being the perfect parent or spouse um, or ever, and, or, and, but maybe not achieving as much as fast um, as I would professionally and trying to gain some peace about that. And uh, I would never use the term balance to explain my life. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, I, I would say trade-offs that were 
measured, intentional, and timely that then allowed me to, um, to perhaps expand in a different place. I've been a, you know, I've been a leader in a number of things here at Mayo, and I've been a leader in initiatives that have not gone anywhere for a long time, right? You keep running it up and somebody in your organization or some, you know, some group says that's not possible. The other thing I took away from my life experience is sometimes you can be beating on a door for so long, banging your head on a door, trying to do something you're frustrated about, and you will miss that the window opened behind you. Mm. And so continuing to look and um, stay focused, but have some diversions and embrace serendipity, because I certainly did. The whole SCAD research thing was all about serendipity and sort of saying, gosh, this could be really cool or nothing, but let's go with it. Oh, it's amazing uh, that the piece you found in, in, in finding your balance or your um, whatever it is that you call it has brought you immense success. And, uh, and for that, uh, we're grateful. Uh, women are grateful. I'm grateful as a woman and possibly a patient. Who knows? Uh, and that I know that um, so, many, so much progress has been made um, because of the work that you have done. Uh, Sharon, it's just wonderful to speak with you, but uh, I can talk to you for hours, not just this. This is just, you know, a tip of the iceberg. Um, but tell us in your departing words that one thing we don't know about you, like your, your, the hobby you most enjoy that no one knows about. Well, first of all, Roxana, this has been a joy as well, and you are far, <laughs> and you are far too kind. So um, I... I love to cook, and I am I am known uh, among family and friends that they will often never have the same dish twice because I completely improvise. Um, I uh, I like to I love to eat out and then recreate the dish even if I don't have the recipe uh, at home and and it's sort of a challenge. So it's like my chemistry set at home. And my uh, and my family uh, are my guinea pigs because sometimes, but they they'll say this is great, but I know I'll never have it exactly again. And, I, and that's fine. So I'm, I'm a, an adventuresome eater as well as, um, I won't say gourmet cook, but adventuresome uh, cook. Well, I can't wait to come visit you there and, and, and uh, have dinner with you. Well, it sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us on Rock's Heart Radio. What a wonderful uh, honor to have you as our guest. And we look forward to keep talking to you and getting to know you uh, and uh, your insights are just invaluable for our audience. I'd love to have you back and talk about women in cardiology a little bit more about gender neutrality in our field, which is suffers so much uh, and uh, unfortunately for the loss of talent and hopefully by women listening to you, they'll be more and more excited about cardiology. Thank you for all that you have done and uh, continue to do uh, for the field and for women in cardiology. Thank you, Sharon, for being with us today. Thank you, Roxana. And this is Rox Heart Radio, Roxana Moran signing off. Thank you for listening. Keep listening.